Our scripture text for this morning comes from the book of John, chapter 3, as we read verses 22 through 36. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing near Anan, near Salim, because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Father, would you show us your Son this morning through the Scriptures? Would you expose our own hearts and our own immense need for your son today? Would you help us never to tire of knowing you through Jesus Christ? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There was a kid when I was in grade school, and for some reason, this kid always wanted to get me and my friends to fight. And so he would come up to me or he would come up to me and when Travis wasn't around and he would say, Travis says that you're not as good at running as he is, you know, just like silly childhood type stuff. Um, Or if my friend Matt wasn't around, he'd say, Matt says he's better at Super Mario Brothers than you are. And, uh, you know, stuff that really important stuff, you know, the kind of stuff he thought would, would create a fight between me and my friends. He did. There were two things he didn't know about me. One is that I am not a competitive person. Um, and so really, he, he sort of picked the wrong person to start fights with because competitive, competitiveness is not the lever that's going to get Adam Parker to get into a fight with somebody. Um, but he would take these things uh, that my friends evidently said, and I have no reason to think they didn't say. And the thing was, I knew that they were true. Um, so there wouldn't be a fight. And, and I would say to him, have you seen me run? Uh, <laughs> I, I ran back then about as well as I do now. 
Uh, you know, and, and, and if he said, uh, you know, if he talked about Matt playing Mario Brothers, I'd say, have you seen Matt play Mario? You would know that Matt is better at Mario than I am. Uh, I like watching people play more than I actually like playing. So, so this kid would try to start a fight. And, and he tried to, to make that happen by creating a competition where there really was no competition. Um, and there are just some people in some areas of life that you just shouldn't compete with. And this morning, it kind of feels like there is an attempt here to create a competition where there should be no competition. They want to create a competition between John the Baptist and Jesus, sort of like this kid trying to make a fight happen where there really is no fight. Um, The passage begins with Jesus baptizing. And we find out another place he's been doing the baptism through the disciples. So he doesn't do the baptisms himself. Um, And this creates the opportunity for uh, a Jewish person to come to John's disciples and engage them in a conversation. And then after that conversation, the disciples come to John. They say, Rabbi, he who is with you across the river, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. So you hear there's, there's this implication in it. You know, you should be upset that they're going to him. I think that's the unspoken statement here. So the occasion for what we see this morning is that the Jews and maybe even John's disciples seem to see a competition between John and Jesus. But here's the substance of the conversation. It's in verse 30. Because John rebuffs this idea that he is somehow competing with Jesus. He says, look, I'm a friend of the bridegroom. When I hear his voice, it makes me glad. So when I see Jesus baptizing and speaking and people following his voice, that fills up my joy. It completes my joy. This is what I'm living for. It's sort of like John is saying, I love truth. Why on earth would it disappoint me to see Jesus gaining followers? That's in essence what John responds with. See, the Jews, they think that John is like them. They are jealous of Jesus. And it may very well be that John's disciples are jealous of Jesus. And and maybe they think John should be as well. But that is because on some level they don't love truth and they don't love Christ. And we know this because of John's statement. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So see, John is saying these folks are missing something in their heart that causes them to miss what's really going on here. And they think of Jesus as an adversary instead of as a friend. They think of Jesus as a competitor instead of as a savior. But then we hear this statement from John, clear as day. And and Leon Morris says that these are some of the greatest words to ever fall from the lips of a mortal man. When John says those words, he must increase, but I must decrease. And what we have this morning is sort of an argument within an argument. Because the first argument John makes is, I am not competing with Jesus because Jesus is superior to me. And then what John is really doing is he's putting into action one of the battle cries of the Reformation, soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. He he must increase, I must decrease. He gets the credit. He gets the glory. And so, in a sense, what you really have here is you have John the Baptist's argument For soli deo gloria. You have John's argument for why God should be the one who gets all the glory here. Why should John not matter? John is making the argument for why John doesn't matter. Why do I deserve 
to be forgotten. Why should Jesus get all the attention? So that's the argument within the argument. I'm not competing with Jesus. That's the first argument. And the second argument is because Jesus is superior to me. So if he makes the argument that Jesus is superior to him and it's a sound argument, then it follows that he's not competing with Jesus. Why is Jesus superior? Why should I be forgotten? Because he's so glorious. But why should he get all the glory and everyone forget about John already? Well, in the next six verses, John is making the case Jesus is not only superior to John, but Jesus is superior to all other human beings who ever have lived or whoever will live. John's argument here is bigger than himself. He's putting Jesus up against every human being whoever has lived or whoever will live. And so what I want to do this morning is just briefly look at these four arguments John makes for the superiority of Jesus. I think each of us need in our own lives to be reminded why he must increase and why we must decrease. The first argument John makes is for the superiority of Jesus is that Jesus comes from heaven. He He says this in verses 32 and 33. There's a logic to what he says. He says, he who comes from above is above all. He calls Jesus the one who comes from above. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. So twice there, he says that Jesus comes from heaven. So so for John, part of what makes Jesus glorious and worthy of worship is his origin. Uh, There is no conceiving of Jesus apart from where he came from. Now, technically, he has no origin, right? He has a divine nature. His divine nature has no origin. There was no time when he began to exist. But from John's perspective, where Jesus comes from defines who he is. Now, we know where Jesus came from. We saw it earlier in the book. Jesus is the word He is the one who was in the beginning with God, and he was and is God. He existed before he became a man. And so Jesus is from above. He is God himself, fully God and fully man. Not only did Jesus come from heaven, but a major point for John is that John did not come from heaven. (laughs) Uh, John says, he who is of the earth speaks to the earth and speaks In an earthly way. And what he's doing for us here is, if you want to think of it as a scale, he's putting Jesus on the one side and saying, he's from heaven and I'm from earth. And there is no competition there. There is no debate here. There is an infinite distance between John and Jesus. Jesus is heavenly. John is earthly. Jesus existed before all things with the Father. John came into existence at a certain point in time. And so did we. That's us over here. And and that means for John, the idea of an eternal being, being upstaged by a mortal man is laughable. It's, It's almost hilarious. There is no competition. There is no competition. And so John says, Jesus deserves the glory because he's from heaven, because of who he is. That's his first argument. For the superiority of Jesus. John's second argument for the superiority of Jesus is that he speaks the truth. He's a truth teller. He, he, he puts it this way in verses 32 and 33. He says, 
He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. So the second aspect of Jesus and and who he is here is the fact that he is a truth teller. He he is honest. He he doesn't disguise things. He doesn't, doesn't hide things. You see this very frequently in Jesus's ministry that he was a preacher and he made preaching his high priority. There comes one point in the ministry of Jesus where Jesus gets surrounded by all these people who, who need to have miracles done for them. They need to be healed. They need to walk again. They need to see again. All of these things matter and they're important. And yet Jesus doesn't stick around to do the miracles. Because he, didn't, he says, I didn't come to do miracles. He says, I came to preach. He says, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came. So why did Jesus come? He came mainly to preach. He came mainly to teach. Even the miracles that he did, they were, they were meant to make people listen to him. They were supposed to hear the truths that he was sharing. So in Jesus, there is this primacy of the importance of speaking, of talking, of communicating the truth in an audible way. There is no gospel without words. There is no gospel, there is no good news that human beings can receive if we do not use propositional truths. And I know that that sounds so heady and that sounds so philosophical, but in essence, you must speak words so that people understand themselves and understand the Savior who came to rescue them. Um, That's why it drives me crazy when, when people say preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Because... It is always necessary. (laughs) The gospel is an idea. It's not just an action. I mean, there are unsaved people who do kind acts every day. And the gospel doesn't get shared when they do those kind acts. What did Jesus do, though? Jesus bore witness to what he had seen and heard. So here there's a connection between not only where he came from. He came from above. What does he do? He bears witness to what he saw. So the truth that he tells is connected to the fact that he came from above. He, he spoke the truth and he uttered the words of God. Everything Jesus said was true. Especially when he had something really important and he wanted to make sure they didn't even question what he had to say. He would, he would sometimes say, truly, truly. He would, he would emphasize over and over again, truly, truly, I say to you. He loved truth. He he prayed for us to love the truth. He said, he prays for us and he said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus was a man who cared about the truth. He, He hated deception. He never lied. His greatest enemy in the entire world was what he called the father of lies and who lied from the beginning. He never lied. Jesus never lied. He only ever told the truth, even if it hurt him in the short term. And actually, he he doesn't say John bore witness. If you actually look at the wording here, he doesn't say Jesus bore witness. John actually says it in the present tense. He says he bears witness. And then part of the point of this is that there's a present tense here. His words are still relevant. Jesus didn't show up, uh, drop 
uh, drop the mic on these people and then just get out of there. Instead, he spoke words that still matter to each of us if we have ears to hear. Remember what John's doing when he, when, at this point. Remember what he's doing. Don't get lost. John is making the case that he and Jesus are not in competition. They aren't on different teams. They both serve the same cause. Jesus, John loves Jesus because Jesus speaks the truth. And that is a rarity in our day. We are increasingly finding ourselves in a world where we don't know if what somebody said on TV is true. If we see a video of something, we don't even know if that's real. Everything, it is like we're constantly wondering what's true, what's not true. And we find ourselves saying, I don't know. And maybe even throwing up our hands in frustration. If there is one thing that you can count on, one thing you can trust, it is that in this world where everything can be cynically questioned, one thing you know for sure is that Jesus always tells the truth. You can keep retreating back to that truth, that Jesus always tells the truth. That is your anchor. That is your hope. That is your base. That is the place that you can camp out and you know that he won't fail you. And so John says Jesus deserves all the attention and he deserves all the glory because he speaks the truth. John's third argument for the superiority of Jesus is that he has the spirit. In verse 34, John tells the Jews something. He says, he whom, actually not the Jews, it's his followers. He whom God has sent utters the words of God for he gives the spirit without measure. Now, when you read this, you go, who is the he? Who is giving the spirit? There are two ways to read it. On the one hand, maybe you read this and you think that it's saying that Jesus utters the words of God because Jesus gives the spirit without measure. Now, I would suggest that's not the right way to understand this because follow the logic of the passage again. The passage says, he whom God has sent, that's Jesus, utters the words of God for How is he able to utter the words of God? He gives the spirit without measure. So how is Jesus able to utter the words of God according to John? Because God gives the spirit without measure. So in other words, linguistically and theologically, the passage is actually saying that the reason Jesus utters the words of God is because God has given the spirit to Jesus without measure. Now, a little over a month ago, we, we talked about the baptism of Jesus, and we talked about the fact that Jesus was baptized by John. John saw the Spirit descend on Jesus, and we talked about the fact that the Spirit was with Christ in his earthly ministry, enabling Jesus to serve, enabling Jesus to do the miracles that he did. And John says the Father gave the Spirit to Christ without measure. He has been given the Spirit in a way that has no limits. And so here is the thing. Maybe sometimes to you the idea of having the Holy Spirit feels abstract. It feels like you're just saying a theological thing. But it doesn't feel like you're saying a real life everyday practical thing. That might be true. Maybe you think of the giving of the Spirit. And you just think that sounds like something that theological people talk about. But that doesn't feel like it helps me very much. I don't even know what that looks like. And I want you to know that if you want to know what it looks like to have the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, to live a Spirit-filled life, you need only look at Jesus. If you want to know what a totally Spirit-filled person looks like, look no further than Jesus. 
If you want to know what true spiritual human holiness looks like lived out, your answer is in the life of Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson points out that the Spirit wasn't just some theological truth, but Jesus experienced in a visible flesh and blood, real life way, what the Spirit can do in the heart of a human being. Listen to this. This is how Sinclair Ferguson says. This is how Jesus grew in the wisdom from above, which was both pure and peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit. He was the wise man who shows his wisdom by his good life and by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. This is what it meant for him to live in the power and grace of the Spirit. And so John says, Jesus deserves all the attention. Jesus deserves all the glory because in his earthly ministry, he had the Spirit without measure. John makes a fourth argument for the superiority of Jesus. He says he is superior because he is loved by the Father. In verse 35, John says, the Father loves the Son. I want you to think about this. Think about how the Trinity factors into this. Now, maybe the term Trinity is not familiar to you. Maybe it's a new term. The Trinity simply is the teaching that there is one God. There is only one God. Christians affirm and believe that there is only one God, just like the Old Testament said, just like the Hebrew Shema said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. At the same time, we also know from Scripture that there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three of each of of them is fully God and fully worthy of the glory of God. And so that's what we're talking about when we talk about the Trinity. We're talking about each of the persons of the Trinity. And the question is this, why is Jesus worthy? The presence of the Spirit and the love of the Father. Do you see how all three persons of the Trinity are connected together in the ministry of Jesus? Jesus' own worthiness is never separated from the Father and from the Spirit. Everything that makes Jesus worthy of our worship and worthy of being remembered while John is worthy of being forgotten has to do with the Father and the Spirit, all three persons. And notice this, John is focused, though, in this instance at this point on the love of the Father. Some of the greatest confusion in our own day relates to love and what love really is. Um, If you did a man-on-the-street interview, if you just walked around and talked to people and you asked them, what does love mean? Uh, I think people would get, you would get very puzzled answers. I think people would even struggle to give you a definition of love because people use the word love all the time. They use the word daily. Um, For some people, love is a sentiment. It It means that they had a feeling. It means that they had a thought. They had an urge. They had something toward another person. Um, For other people, when you mention love, they just think of it basically as a physical relationship, the act of love, you might say. Um, For others, love is a social construct. It's a bond that's formed between organisms, uh, right? They just think of love in a physical sense, just in a sort of, that's an atheistic model. That's a secular way of thinking about love. But here is the thing that makes what John is talking about so different. In the Bible, love is a commitment expressed in action. Love is a commitment expressed in action. Anything less is shallow and fleeting and passing. And there is no commitment or bond 
that is deeper than the one between the Father and the Son. We know that from the way Jesus prayed to the Father. In John 17, he was speaking to the Father in the garden and he says, You loved me before the foundation of the world. That's a deep love. Before stars were in the sky, before there was water over the face of the deep, before there were constellations or lands, volcanoes or ice caps, the Father loved the Son. They had a bond. I think none of us can understand and none of us can really fully relate to. And yet Jesus repeatedly insisted that it was true. And he says it again in John 5.20, telling us that the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Does this mean that God doesn't love John the Baptist? John the Baptist gets to be forgotten because the Father doesn't love him? No, of course not. But there is no human relationship that will ever have the, the sort of human creature that will ever have the sort of relationship with God that the Son did. The love between the Father and the Son doesn't stay between the Father and the Son either because the Father loves the Son. The love between them is shared with the creatures in a limited way. God so loved the world because the Father first loved the Son. And so John says, Jesus deserves all the attention. Jesus deserves all the glory because he is loved by the Father. What starts to form here as you look at how John sees Jesus, is a cumulative case that, no, it doesn't break John's heart to see people following Jesus. What would really break his heart is to see people following him and not believing in Jesus. What does John say? He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The real tragedy, in other words, is when people get so focused on the messenger that they miss why the messenger came. John says, I came to point you to eternal life. It's not me, it's him. Jesus, over there, not me. Stop looking at me. Go over there. Go where the life is. And he says it in the present tense. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. He doesn't talk about it like it's some truth that was so beautiful so long ago that maybe we look back on and we remember and we wish that it was still true. No, no, Jesus says right now, John says right now is your moment to truly believe. Free of charge. J.C. Ryle says this present tense language matters. He says pardon, peace, peace. And a complete title to heaven are an immediate possession. They are a believer's own from the very moment he puts his faith in Christ. And when John says all this, he has a perspective that keeps him from ever envying Jesus or the attention that he's getting. Because by this point, John knows his limits. None of this is true of John. All of these things that he said, he knows that he's a sinner. He knows that he's a person who has lied in his life. He knows that he didn't come from above. He came from the earth. And you could just go through all the reasons that he gives and see that John doesn't stack up at all against Jesus. There is no human being who comes from heaven. There is no human being who is 
sovereign. There is no human being who is full of the Spirit without measure. Nobody you know except Jesus fits any of these things. And all of these things mean that Jesus is totally unique. He's in a class all his own. And John knows that the real tragedy is if people focused on him but not on Jesus, that would be the tragedy. You have the same perspective? One of the greatest threats to the Christian life is, and to our being used as his tools is a desire for personal prominence in the kingdom of God. One of the truly ugly things that Christians can be tempted towards is envy of others, uh, a party spirit in the church. It, and that's not just a modern problem. That's an ancient church problem. <clears throat> if you look in the early church, it seems as though some Christians were in the midst of something like that when it came to Paul and Apollos, two men who were gifted to teach, gifted to preach, gifted to serve, and people were tempted to focus on them and make their personalities what it was about instead of Jesus. Kent Hughes says this problem very well. He says, our competitive society is structured to compel us to measure our achievements against those of others. Very few things give enemies of Christianity an occasion for blasphemy like a jealous party spirit among Christians. How do you fight that impulse? The answer isn't just, well, become this non-competitive personality type because you can be non-competitive and yet feel like you're still underappreciated. Maybe you do a lot for the church, but you feel like nobody ever says thank you. Um, Maybe you feel like you have a lot of gifts, but you, but you see somebody else getting a lot of attention, doing the things that you'd like to be doing. Um, envy can still come up, you see. See, John's your example here this morning because Jesus is starting to gain the spotlight from John. And in all of our lives, we need to be eager to be upstaged by God. Maybe God wants to be prominent in your life, but he does it by refusing to give you what you want. For many of us, the worst thing for our souls would be success upon success. It would just devastate us. It would inflate our egos. It would grow us. We would start to think that we're blessings and that we're blessing the church rather than God is blessing the church through us. John is an example to us because he is being upstaged by Jesus Christ. And how does he handle it? By cheering it on. Jesus is, of course, greater than me. Let me count the ways. And he gave us all these reasons why Jesus is superior to himself. And we need that reminder too. We need to be kept humble. It makes us remember where we've come from. It makes us remember his grace. It makes us remember who he is and what he owes us, which, by the way, is nothing. And perhaps most importantly of all, we need it because it sets our eyes on Christ and it takes our eyes off of ourselves. Christian, there will probably be times when you feel underappreciated or when you actually will be underappreciated. People around you will probably fail you and and not tell you good job or thank you for your service or what you do. And there are two sides, though, to every offense. There's the sin of giving offense and there's the sin of taking offense. I remind my kids of this a lot if I ever see them fighting. Sometimes you need to be reminded that, yes, you were wronged, but yes, you were also wrong in the way you were wronged. (laughs) And John reminds us this morning to fade into the background 
is a great mercy. It is not a punishment. If you can say from the bottom of your heart those words, he must increase, I must decrease, that is a gift from God. To have the eyes of others taken off of us and placed on Jesus means that we are truly living out the purpose God has given to each and every one of us to be people who make others think more about Jesus than they think about us. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts fail us. We are far worse than we usually think. And we are far more in need of your gospel than we usually would ever guess. Would you remind us this morning, by means of your text of scripture, that our life and death, suffering and struggles, everything we are and everything we have exists to further your glory, to help people to see the weight of God. The glory of God. Would you help us never to take the place of God, but always say, he must increase, but I must decrease. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.